0: Welcome to The Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live healthy, connected, and purpose-filled lives. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today's episode is an excerpt from our Commune course, Principles of Permaculture with Warren Brush and Quail Springs. Over the course of the next hour, Warren will give you a sense of just how much we can learn from indigenous agricultural practices. For example, did you know that traditional Hawaiian cultures managed entire volcanic mountainsides from summit to ocean for sustainable food production, or that slash and burn was once a regenerative form of agriculture in the tropics and subtropics? Humans have been observing, problem-solving, and ethically engaging with their landscapes for millennia, but we have now forgotten how to do that. In fact, many cultures lived in such a harmonious, abundant relationship with the land that despite thriving for thousands of years, they left almost zero footprint. Now, I hope you come away from this presentation with a better understanding of how to source the food you eat in a way that is life-sustaining instead of life-draining. And if you want to go much deeper on this topic, please check out the full principles of permaculture course by going to onecommune.com trial and signing up for a free 14 day trial of Commune membership. Here's Warren starting with a brief overview of permaculture.
1: Good day everyone. I'm always glad to be able to share about permaculture and one of the things my elders have always shared with me is that uh, that it's really crucial that if you're doing something that's to last through time where you're doing where you're doing something that's life giving for your children's children's children that you begin in gratitude. So today I wanna to begin in gratitude and to just give thanks for this land that we call Quell Springs. It's a very special place in the high desert of Southern California that has transformed from an overgrazed landscape to a amazing oasis that, is, uh, that, is, that has been tended by people using permaculture principles close to 20 years. I want to give gratitude for every part of this land, for all of the the shrubs that are here, all of the trees that are here, all of the dusky footed wood rats. Just driving in yesterday, there was a roadrunner running down the road welcoming me to the site. I want to give gratitude to the springs that gives all life. And here at Quail Springs, we're one of the few springs in this valley that has not gone dry. So many of the the springs in the Cuyama Valley have gone completely dry over the last years. And it's been from overgrazing, it's been from deforestation, it's been from all of these things that show us that we really do need to be thinking more ecologically, more holistically, and in a way that is life-giving. And so today I start with the gratitude for this land and the way that this land is rejuvenated, that it's regenerating now. It's in a cycle of regeneration rather than a cycle of degeneration. And that comes from conscious design. And I wanna talk today a little bit about permaculture and why we need it in the world. Um, This is uh, an unprecedented time on so many levels. Around the world, and a lot of the work that I'm doing, I see ecological destruction happening uh, in exponential forms all over that are destabilizing the ecologies that actually sustain us. Whole systems thinking is something that actually comes from an, our, our indigenous hardwired brain, the part of us that goes back to where we as humans on the earth have actually lived close to that which sustains us and i'm going to talk more about that later this morning first i want to bring your attention to the slide we have on the screen and there you're going to see a few different pictures one of them is an amazing lady that i met in lakipia kenya who is a Maasai elder who's actually over a hundred years old and i show this picture when i think of why permaculture because there's a story behind a picture as you all know this is uh every picture has a thousand stories if you look deep into it so i want to share a little bit about her she um, was teaching the young women of her tribe about how to take that gourd that she has sitting there and how to cure it in a way using local herbs and a process that she had learned from her mother who learned it from her mother who learned it from her mother how to make a container that can actually hold goat's milk for four days in the tropical heat without actually having, um, having it go rancid. And so she was teaching them and she was taking these herbs and she would light them on fire and then she would breathe in the smoke and then blow into the gourd and curing the edges of the gourd and then she would add some of the herbs with liquid and then she would pour that out and then cure more with the, the smoke. And over and over she did this to a point and all the young women are watching because they know that milk means life for them, that they know that if they can keep their milk from going rancid, it can help them to be able to get all of the sustenance that they need. And so she was teaching these girls at over 100 years old, she's still a vital part of her community. And so I share this for a few reasons, because I think permaculture, one of the things we look at is we look at how we interact socially, how our social structures are either intact or they've been degraded. Often when we go into a landscape, you see degradation of the landscape, but we forget to look at the degradation of society. We forget to look at how oftentimes social systems degrade almost in equal uh, proportions to the landscape. So here, this woman is, is maintaining a rich tradition of how to live from the land in which they dwell. Permaculture is all about that. It's all about knowing that which sustains us and being able to honor those things deeply and doing it in a way where we support the next generation of human beings to be able to take that teaching and to uh, evolve it in a way that gives more life. And, And so for me, that picture is about giving life. It's about maintaining life and about regenerating life. You move over to the right of that picture of, of that elder, and there you have a, uh, a home. And this is a home in northern Kenya and Turkana country. And this is a different tribe that's related to the Maasai. And this is a particular home where I went into the community with the Danish Refugee Council, and we went into this community where their landscape was very very degraded and we asked who is the most vulnerable where is the most vulnerable land meaning the most degraded and where is the most vulnerable people on that land that we could work with because we wanted to show two things we wanted to work with damaged landscapes we wanted to go to the most damaged landscape and when i was training with bill mollison years ago one of the things that came up that he shared that really stuck with me is that permaculture is not about going into a pristine landscape and saying hey i'm going to go into the forest and do permaculture it's about going into a damaged place and he being a healing presence in that place it's about taking a degenerative process and generating using generative structures in that landscape to then create a system that regenerates through time. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later in this lecture. So here we have a woman who she said nothing would grow at our house. She said the soils are the worst. It floods every year. She said um, she is a widow. In fact, just back from the house, uh, there's a place where her husband is buried and she is um, taking care of young children and she had no food growing and she was eating every three days is what I was told. And so, and that every year during the flooding, that it would flood through and she would have to stand on her bed and, and literally her, it would fill up her whole house with water. And so we had definitely a damaged landscape and we had a vulnerable person. So we said, let's demonstrate here. And you'll see in permaculture, we so often, we say the three most important ways to share permaculture is one, demonstration. It's super important, you've gotta show it. Two, demonstration. You've got to demonstrate it. And three, the most important of how to share permaculture is demonstration. So here with this woman, we, we learned her story. And we learned about the land. She showed us how that landscape, how it moved. She showed us how water moved in that landscape. She showed us the resources that she had from goat manure to different types of leaves and different things that were available there, different types of carbon material that we could integrate. And as a community, we built the garden you see there. And as a part of this, we first start by planting the rain. We first start by working with the hydrology and the soils. So one of the foundational aspects of permaculture is soil and water. And so you can see in this picture, we were so fortunate. We finished building these, what we call permagardens. We fenced it off using only local materials, only local seeds. We built the water harvesting structure. And the next day, we were blessed with rain, which was so exciting because what happens when you demonstrate it is that people can see how it functions. And so here the water came in, it filled the bioswale that was there, it it commissioned a gray water system that was there, and here we started to harvest water and now this woman is eating out of this garden. So for me, why permaculture? It's about healing, landscapes that have been damaged. And we can do it very quickly. This was built in four hours. This whole garden was built in four hours. Granted, there were about 30 of us who were doing it, but we built it in four hours. We can literally change the story of people who are are not getting their needs to being able to get their needs right at their homes. And I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of the permaculture story. And then we go down to the last picture, um, or the third picture on the, the screen, and there you see a young woman holding a chicken. Now that's here at Quell Springs, and this is part of a program that's been running here for many years, where young people who are in their teens come up to Quell Springs to learn about those things that feed them. So, many, many kids, or most kids, have eaten chicken, but never have any of them held a chicken. Never have we, many of them, seen the process of taking a chicken from life through the death process to the table and the fork. And so, this is something that is really an important learning when we start to think of why permaculture. It's about knowing the lineage of those things that feed us, that sustain us. It's about knowing the stories of not just the food, but also our clothing, also the buildings that we're in. Like I'm uh, in this building right now made of mud from this land. And there's many, many, many stories about um, how we can be in touch with this type of uh, building in a way that is, is uh, direct, and it's and it's substantial in that we can claim and we can know for sure that it was built with equity in the in the in the landscape. We can know for sure that this building was built with good ethics and that's an important part of permaculture which is ethically based and we'll talk more about that later as well. So those three pictures are my introduction which is something that I feel is really important when we think of why are we even you know, watching this? And it's about doing life-giving actions, about designing our life so that our actions are life-giving. It's about designing our life so that there's more life happening than what we take. It's about producing more calories than what we consume. And that really is at the heart of why we need permaculture. Mm-hmm. I'd like to share a quote from um, one of my teachers, Bill Mollison, uh, who says, the greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on the small scale in our gardens. If only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack, and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. I share this here early in this discussion because it speaks to what are we actually doing in our lives to make foundational change. And permaculture is about foundational change. It's about going to the edge and in systems theory, The edge is where new energy comes into a system. It doesn't come from the center of a system. It comes from outside. It enters in. And and permaculture is an edge design system that brings new energy in. And it gets us to think about how we're making foundational change in us. And that's what permaculture is about. It's not about going and doing this to someone else or sharing this with someone else until you've done those changes in your own life and to where you embody your understanding of design through the your own landscape where you live and that can be in an urban environment i've seen a fifth floor farm in the most urban uh, apartment building in nairobi to uh, suburban plots in pasadena that are growing food commercially on a quarter acre plot um, to broad acre landscapes and you know larger farms like the Dashas of russia where they produce over 50 percent of their food in farms that are two acres or less to very large farms that you see all over the world that um, are are growing on thousands of acres and so here permaculture can apply to all of those different aspects of growing because it's not gardening it's not composting. Permaculture is not natural building. Permaculture is not gray water systems. Permaculture is not about a food forest. But what it is, is about how you design all of those aspects into a human settlement. It's about designing life. And that is what's really important. And it's one of the things that has been really important in the permaculture movement is that it's been accessible to all that's been something that the permaculture movement is working on it's it's still I think uh, has a lot of growth to happen there where it's where it's more diverse and accessible and I think it's really important that um, that that this teaching and understanding can be shared and disseminated globally um, where it's appropriate but Also very important is that you recognize where it's happening and it's not called permaculture. And I think that's really important is that we don't get stuck on the word permaculture, but we get, um, we, we marry the idea of ecological regeneration and agro-ecosystem development that is life-giving. And wherever that happens, we embrace it and say, hey, we're kindred in this. And I think that's an important part of this journey for all of us, and especially those of you who are just starting and asking questions in your own life of, you know, how do I get my food? Where does it come from? And those are activities that I think are really important for each of you to start doing, is starting to, to track your sustenance line and start to look at where you can quickly bring that sustenance closer to you and in relationship. Maybe right now you're buying food at Whole Foods or maybe you're buying it at at a place called Trader Joe's or wherever the markets, the big markets that you're in, you might be going there and you might not know the story of that fruit. You might not know the story of the meat. You might not know the story of the grain, but what you can do is then start to look locally. Where are farmers that are that are actually growing some of this that I can be in relationship and learn about how they're farming, what they're farming. And and bring that into my life. So you're bringing your sphere of resources closer to you and more and in a way where you can take more responsibility for it. Then you can start to look at what are the things I can grow that I don't even need to get from the farmer. And you start to make steps that make sense. So first by starting is just tracking. Where does my food come from? Where where am I going? And that's lesson number one is really learning about that and where those things come from. Another important aspect of of permaculture design is that it's using local resources as best as possible. And local resources are often overlooked, which is really amazing. So a lot of the work like I've done over the years in farming is I'll go to our community that I'm providing food for commercially, and I'll look for waste streams that are in that community. And I'll start to gather those waste streams in a way that turns it from being something that is could be potentially causing damage ecologically to actually be helping in the healing process. For example, I would go to a local brewery and I I remember very distinctly going to Island Brewery in Carpinteria and went to the owner and the brewer and said, hey, we see these barrels of of your spent grain from your brewing process out back and they were paying someone to, to, to send it away. What if we came and picked it up regularly and you didn't have to pay for it? And they said, better than that we'll give you free beer if you go ahead and take that for us. So we would fight for who goes gets the, um, the grain because it's, it was such a great exchange. And then we took that grain and we brought it to our piggery where we have heritage breeds of pigs. And we would use that as a supplement to their food. And then we found that there were other waste streams, like at the end of, of um, Halloween, there would be all of these pumpkins that would not you know, be good for cooking, but they would be literally thrown or turned back into the field that, that wasn't sold from pumpkin patches. And we would gather those and feed the pigs during the winter. And then that those pigs, in turn, did work on our farm. So they would help us to increase our natural resources by putting manure where we needed it and they would cycle the nutrients that came from the waste stream back into the food systems that would then feed the people who were going to the brewery. Um, We also would take some of the pork and we sold to another brewery that pork who did they did uh, a restaurant with it. So there was this important understanding of cycling of resources that's a very core understanding of permaculture. I'd like to talk today about the processes that support a vibrant permaculture design system. Uh, This permaculture just didn't come out of thin air, it wasn't uh, thought up as something new, it was was something that came from a lot of indigenous wisdom, some really good sound science, and a look at how appropriate technology plays out in uh, regenerative human settlement. So today I'm going to start back at looking where the principles of design for the permaculture methodology begins and those processes developed out of looking at sustainable regenerative cultures that had been established for over a thousand years. So if you look at through history there has been many many cultures that have lasted for thousands and thousands of years and we don't even have record of some because they were so sustainable and so regenerative they left no footprint and yet we know that many people existed in a way where they harmonized with the natural environment When Bill Mollison and David Holmgren were looking at establishing permaculture as a design framework, they wanted to learn from patterns of what other people had done in sustainable human settlement. And so the first one I'd like to look at, because they're all over the world. There was the Ahuapoaha system or the Ohana system from Hawaii, which had been regenerative for well over thousands of years. Um, there was the Chinampa systems of the Aztecs in central Mexico. There were the Swidden systems, or what some people refer to now as the slash and burn systems, that have been found in Asia, Africa, and there's even some evidence that it came up into the subtropical region of Europe that the Swidden system had been used. and. The Balinese rice cultures, the uh, pork, cork and grain systems of Portugal, all of which had been studied intensively by the two of them to find the common patterns between them that would inform regenerative design in today's context. So I'm going to take you through a couple of them and just so you can see where these principles were derived. Um, And so I'm going to bring you first to the Ahuapoaha system and which I was very fortunate to be able to see the remnants of one of these systems in Kauai. Uh, Many years ago, I had a chance to visit one of these systems with a grandmother, a native grandmother there who walked us through the land and showed us what these systems used to look like and there are still remnants from it. In fact, a lot of it you can still see from a satellite view, the remnants of it. Um, so let me walk you through this and pull out a few key points that will help us to understand better how to design. So here you see a pattern. Um, the pattern is an angular pattern. Obviously, it's uh, I may not be the best artist in the world, but hopefully it's depicting uh, uh, what uh, is needed to be able to get this across to you. So what do you see? I'm hoping when I ask that you say a volcano and because of the shape of it, um, volcanoes have a very distinct um, angularity to them, based on their repose of the particulate that is unique to volcanic rock. So, if you have the what they call the angle of repose, when that rock uh, spews out, it falls at a certain angle. Like in a in a compost pile, be, based on what materials there are, it'll fall at a certain angle of repose based on what the materials are. So a volcanic rock generally has a 64 degree angle that is recognizable by your pattern eye. So you can see, wow, there's something in that shape. And when you're driving through the landscape or going with a boat through the landscape, you can point out volcanoes by their rough angle of repose. So that's again, another idea of pattern understanding. So we start at the top and the reason I'm gonna do that because that is one of the principles in which we work when we talk about reestablishing and and rebuilding hydrological cycles. We always begin at the top and work down. So here we have a, um, you know, the top of the volcano and we have this place that is often referred to as the Taboo Forest. Let me write that in here, Taboo Forest. So taboo, what does that mean to you? Um, To me, it is a place that is protected. It's a place that you don't go. It's a place that's off limits, it's taboo. And it's a place that the grandmothers there told me that, you only went there for very few times in your whole life, if ever. And, um, and it was mostly around initiation or in, in getting healing herbs and medicines to, to, to help people uh, uh, heal from illness. So this taboo forest is a place that they cannot go. Now, I, I really wanna point this out because it's at the very top and it's protected. So when I walk into a landscape as a permaculture designer, the first thing I look at is the hills. Are the hills treed or is it laid bare? If the hills are treed, I know that there is gonna be a more robust hydrological cycle, because the slowing, spreading, and sinking of rainwater is happening high up on the hill. And that becomes a really important ecological point, is that there's a place that is considered sacred. It's considered, you know, we cannot cut this down for firewood, we cannot uh, allow it to be deforested. Now, in a lot of the places I've seen around the world that the hydrological cycle is collapsed, this was taken out and deforested and immediately following the the hilltop forest being removed the hydrological cycle collapsed the spring lines dried up the boreholes dried up and you started to see the whole system started to degrade all the way down so that is a core principle that we learned from the the native Hawaiian people about tending to our upslope landscapes. Now think about that for yourself. What does that look like where you live? You may not own the top of a mountaintop, or you may not be a part. Even your your whole community might not be at the top of a um, of a mountaintop. So you have to look at the highest point in your system, and it may even be a rooftop. Is it being tended? Is water being slowed down? Is it being uh, tended to in a way where it doesn't cause erosion coming down the mountain. So the taboo forest, the sacred forest, I do really hope that as we rejuvenate landscapes that we can come to common agreement that the hilltops and the trees that need to be replanted there will be protected for our children's children. So the taboo forest. The other thing I wanna point out here is that this is a section of a volcano. Now picture it going around, and this is only one section that's based on a watershed. So this particular watershed is considered one kingdom. So there's one set of politics that drive the decisions based around um, the watershed itself. That is very, very important. I'm gonna put this over here is the watershed has a unified politic. And that lesson is something I wish we had learned when we had designed America. Um, In fact, um, Colonel Powell, who was one of the early explorers who Powell Lake is named after, and had come back to, I believe it was Ulysses S. Grant, and said, you know, this is how we should make up the states based on watersheds. And there's actually a map you can look up online if you look up Colonel Powell and watershed politics. You'll see this map that remakes the entire statehoods based on watersheds. Now, why is that important? Well, here at Quell Springs, we know this uh, the lack of having a unified politic in a watershed leads to decisions being made by multiple different peoples that may or may not have a vested interest in that watershed. So here in Quell Springs, we have four different political jurisdictions, four different counties that actually are come into the headwaters of the Cuyama River. And what that does is each county has different regulations they have different decision-making processes that aren't unified in protecting that watershed and so that is an important lesson that we learn in design from the Puaha systems so now as we work down you know imagine the rain falling on on this amazing amazing volcano in ancient times one of the things you would see is you would see a giant clouds never leave the top of the mountain because of the condensation issues that the the trees are bringing, because of the transpiration that the trees are are helping to bring back that water that came from rainfall back into the atmosphere. And so you get these cloud mountains where the clouds just never leave and, and they're constantly bringing water back into the system. I've seen this as well in, uh, in Kenya in Lake Victoria where there's a, a, a two islands, one had been stripped bare and it's dry, it feels like a desert and you look over at another one that had been reforested completely and there was the cloud that never left and it was constantly cycling water between the atmosphere and the landscape. So it becomes a really important part of beginning the hydrological cycle high up. So as waters start to move their way down, both in the soils as well as on the surface, you see that they started to direct them out on contour the waters into pond systems, that they would raise um, uh, aquatic plants and freshwater fish that they could cultivate. And so here they had this incredible system of fish where their fish uh, emulsion or their fish manures would start to uh, create a high nutrient water system that um, basically would then feed everything else that they were doing down below. And here, imagine the taro root was the main plant that they were growing. So it's a what I call a sacred starch and every cultural people has a sacred starch. They are the starches that keep you alive. So here in California, many of the sacred starches were both roots, but acorns were a big one. So even, and and up here we have the one, uh, the monophylla pinion, which is one of the most nutritious pinion nuts. all of these starches have mythologies that they're part of their mythological story, they are a part of how they tended the landscape and so it was really important that they had places to grow the tar root that they cultivated. So these were, this was an, an agricultural system integrated into the ecology of this volcano. So here, imagine taro root and getting nutrients from the fish and other aquatic plants growing along the edge. And then those waters would then cascade down and feed in the village, which was more mid slope, various garden and plantings that they would do, including some food forestry. But food forestry being an important part of stabilizing the, uh, food, the food systems based on the mimicking of a forest. So here you have the village. Now, imagine when you have all your tar root, tar root's really heavy. You would carry it to where you're going to prepare it. Now, one of the things that makes a lot of sense is, is it's, it's easier to carry heavy things downhill than it is to carry it up. So placing this system above them, they were able to then bring the heavier produce down with much more energy efficiency. And then into the village where there's gardens, there's also, it's mid slope. So it has a lot of benefits here that that can help that village actually avoid the repercussions of tsunami. It also is a place in the landscape that has the most moderating temperature. So let me put this, this is the taro ponds with fish. So you find in the most sustainable and regenerative systems of managed agriculture through history that there's always a combination of animals and plants and fish and plants and birds as well. So there's always an integration of different types of proteins being produced and also different functions that they bring into the landscape. And we'll get into that more as well down down the line. So here we have this fish is providing nutrient. We have the taro as a main starch And then you have the movement of that nutrient down into their systems of gardening and forestry and uh, along the way they harvest more water and they do more of those ponds and have different types of aquatic plants and animals and crustaceans, freshwater crustaceans as well that they're that they're working with. So imagine the bounty that's there and here now what happens is you have the manure from the people. And humanure is what I like to call it, and a lot of people are what I call poo phobic, where they just don't want to talk about, they don't want to deal with their own shit, and it's important for us because. When we look at that, it's an incredible nutrient, and our urine has an incredible amount of potassium. If it's handled well, it can be done in a really safe way. So here you have another nutrient sink. So here's a nutrient sink with the fish, here's a nutrient sink with the people, and then here they pick up the nutrient sink in the forest, the food forest, and the uh, additional ponding systems that they use. So it's, it's really crucial for us to think of the nutrient sinks, and I'm going to put that word down as nutrient cycling. So here we have this nutrient cycling, we have very good living, you can imagine how much bounty is there, and you have this buffer zone of what we call food forests. And That takes us down to the ocean edge, which is right at this place here. This is the ocean edge. And now the food forest is a place that takes up the nutrient that's being dropped further uphill. So if you have a nutrient sink, you have to have nutrient uptake. And that becomes a really important aspect in design. And so they had this tree system that really picked it up. And in there, they also had animals running all around in here um, that that they raised to be able to have additional types of proteins. And then at the very bottom of the land base, they had one more set of ponds that was being fed with both the oceanic water and with freshwater springs that came out just as it came out at the bottom of the system. So here is a mix of waters that are less salty than the regular ocean water. Now, why is that important? And when I first heard this, I thought, wow, this is just brilliant. So if you look at most fish, that are laying their eggs for reproduction, they will find an area that has less salinity. A lot of the fish that, um, especially fish that, that move back and forth between the, the freshwater and the saltwater, they will find a place that um, has less salinity and they'll lay their eggs. So what the, what the Hawaiians did is they, they created the conditions for the fish to come up and lay the babies. And then they, as stewards of the landscape, the people as the stewards of the landscape, started to, um, basically, they, they, they tended a nursery of baby fish. And what I heard from one study I read is that they were actually able to keep more of the fish alive at the younger age from predation so that more could survive. And then what they did is they kept some and then they put more than half back out in the ocean and actually put more back out into the ocean than what would have survived on their own. And so I think about how people have, through history, helped the landscape to produce more by their stewardship. And that's certainly what the Hawaiians were doing. So this was a, a fishery system. And that was an important system to ensure that they always had a lot of fish year round. And and then going out into the ocean, they created this block system. These coral blocks were cut and placed in a way that they created this oceanic fishery system that went out into the ocean in the shallower landscape or in the shallower parts of the ocean. And these blocks you can actually still see from satellite imagery. And one of the things that happened is that they they left these openings in the the coral blocks that allowed the fish to come in during uh, high tide. And then at low tide, they could block it and the water would flush out, but it would trap the fish in here and they with nets would then go out and be able to catch fish that came in from the ocean during the high tide and and then they were able to get another harvest there and then in addition to that they went out in their wakas or their their canoes to actually fish in the open ocean as well so this is a a a really well orchestrated system working with the unique context of this site where they maintain this for a 1000 years. And when I look at this and I say, wow, you know, what can we learn from this? Well, there's a lot of different patterns we can learn about stacking functions in here, we can learn about how how the fish can actually help to feed the taro needs. And so stacking the functions of that. We learn about nutrient cycling. We learn about how energy efficiency is really important. We learn about turning potential problems into solutions here where you start to look at how they could create a way to hold the fish in rather than let them move on. And so they could feed their community in a really bountiful way. And so Bill Mollison and David Holmgren looked at this And they said, wow, there's a lot of principles from this that we should be doing today in design. It's just as relevant today as it was back when the Ahu-Puaha systems were alive and and flourishing. And I'm hoping that they are starting to become alive and flourishing once again. That is my hope so we can continue to learn from the people there. So Now I'd like to look at another system of regenerative agriculture that is historic uh, called the swidden system or what many refer to as the slash and burn system and I know when I say those words slash and burn many of you are probably like wow well that's totally unsustainable. Well now it is but in the ancient times it was actually a very sustainable uh, form of agriculture and let me explain how and let me also explain some of the lessons that we can learn from this system in developing our regenerative agriculture. So back in 2005 when I went to Liberia this was one system that I saw very prominently used it was the predominant uh, type of agriculture throughout the country and you often see in Uh, places that are uh, tropical and it's a tropical form of Uh, and and can edge into subtropics as well, but it is a tropical agriculture strategy. So when it was regenerative, when it was sustainable for thousands of years, there were a few key patterns that we need to look at. So one is the size of a cut in the forest. So now imagine all this blank space Mm. is forest. It would have taken me hours to draw that out. So you'll have to imagine the white space is forest. And we're only looking at this one right now, this one plot of land cut out of the forest. So at the very end of the rainy season, the beginning of the dry season, so the long dry season that each of the tropical areas has, they chop down approximately a two-acre area with hand tools. And in the old days, it was stone tools and bone tools. And I don't know if any of you have ever chopped down a tree with a stone or bone ax, but it is a lot of work. And so you were limited just biologically by the tools you had and the ability of your body to only cut out so much land based on the time you needed to get it felled and then dried out before the next rains and they would look for phenological cues in the landscape when the rain would come, like a certain bird would arrive just as the rains were coming, or several of the birds they would start to preen in a way where they would pull oils out right before the rains came, and they knew it was time to to burn the dried materials that they had cut at the beginning of the season. So now imagine everybody's following that phenological cues in the landscape, and they're now burning they're two acres. And again, I'm just focusing on this one piece right now. These I'm going to explain in just a moment. And this two acres now is burning, but then other people's circles of this and villages and other places are also burning at the same time. Now, once it burns, it creates a lot of ash. And now ash is a very high in pH. It's very alkaline. So they basically get a dump of ash that has a lot of alkalinity in it to help balance the pH so that there's better growing conditions. And then they plant it with 40 to 50 species of food plant. 40 to 50 species. This is not a monocrop. And that 40 to 50 species has a huge amount of biodiversity. So there's a, a huge lesson here. One is scale that we're not building at too large a scale of a agriculture property for us to tend in a way that's biodiverse. The biodiversity in itself is another important design concept that we draw from all of these systems that were looked at um, at, the, at the formation of permaculture. So here you have 40 to 50 species, you have um, you know, the growing, and you basically grow for about two years And you leave a few of the palms and a few of the trees that uh, are emergent plants were left and were perennialized and they plant for two years. But then the fertility is shot after two years because the thin soils in the tropics. And so from there, they have to move. They have to basically find a new plot every two years. So the next two years. They move to a place that's equidistant or more away from where they, the size of the plot that they had just done. So they move a minimum of two acres away from the last plot, and then they do another agriculture for two years, and then they do the same the next two years, and they start to rotate around the village for 14 years. And I know I didn't draw 14 here, but you get the idea is that every two years you're you're doing this and you're moving until you're back to this place 14 years later or more so what happens is as this starts to uh, to be reclaimed by what we call the succession process of nature or the healing mechanisms of nature they start their new agriculture over here and all the pioneer plants come up. So the pioneer plants, we usually refer to them as weeds, but they're actually dynamic accumulators in the landscape. And what they're doing is they're actually reclaiming that damaged landscape because now it's been compacted, it's been deforested and all of these weeds come up and then the termites come in, which is amazing. And they start to eat the various um, plant materials and they start to bring it into uh, basically to build these big mounds and any of you have been in the tropics you'll see these big mounds but every landscapes has its detritus processors so in the temperate climates it's it's like the worms do it in this climate here at Quell Springs it's the ants that do it they are the detritus cyclers and here it's the termites and then also fungi will do it too so you get fungi a lot in the wetter areas so now it's starting to get reclaimed and for 14 years it's rebuilding its system it's rebuilding its resources it's it's getting the soil to a place where it can grow again. And and now the plant life is coming back out, the native plant life. And by the time they come back around, it's ready to plant again. And they can do it all over again and they can maintain this indefinitely. Well, what happened? That's the question we need to look at because here we have all this really good agriculture practices. We have, you know, good growing processes. We have good cycling. We're leaving the rest of the forest around. And one study I read with the Mayans down in in Guatemala and in Belize along the coast area, they actually tended the wild forest like a food forest. So um, there's a great study by Annabelle Ford um, out of, you know, University of California, Santa Barbara, that looked at that um, those systems and they saw that the food for the forests themselves were also cultivated for food, but not cut down. And so now imagine this whole system is providing the, the ability for each of these places to be reclaimed. Because if they did it too close together, the forest couldn't help this reclaim itself. So it would end up starting to degrade the whole area. So they had to keep it rotating at a certain distance. So what happened? Well, it was the introduction of steel. So as we started to get steel into the system, you could cut a lot more of the forest out. And and then as we got further into industrialization, then you got mechanization of it. So chainsaws and large equipment. And so you started to see the average family now did five acres rather than two. So what ended up happening is that land was now much bigger. The five acres was much bigger. And because it was bigger, it was harder to tend a larger variety of species and also the introduction of the need for money, which was never the case before. There was was barter, but not money. And so when money came around, you started to get a diminishing of diversity because you started to get export or saleable plants. So whenever you find a monocrop, you know it's for export. It's it's not necessarily for nutrition. It's something that they're growing to be able to sell a lot of. If, If they're doing it for nutrition, they'll have it balanced with other things that can actually support them nutritionally. So now you have this larger area. So now the next one they had to do closer, and the next one closer, and you can start to see that they didn't have enough forest for rejuvenation now. And they would circle around in six years rather than 14. And within one generation, you started to see the whole system collapse and it could no longer rejuvenate. So by the time they came back around here, it wasn't ready. And it had been over uh, over um, extracted, so to speak. And then what they had to do is they had to move out to other lands. So now it started this expansion expansionist system of desertification. So in Liberia, where I was looking at some of their systems, they some of the farmers had to walk six to eight hours just to get to their field now because it had desertified so far out from where they were that nothing would grow. And so now looking at this system that when it was sustainable there were a lot of good lessons that we derived for permaculture but it, another really important lesson here is the collapse of this system also teaches us a lot we need to be really concerned with how far we extend our biological capacity so our hands and our um Bodies can only do so much, and when we involve machinery, we need to be really careful that we don't extend our biological capacity in a way that's destructive, which is what happened here. So thinking about that, the same tools that cause this destruction could help us in actually turning the story around to being regenerative. We're at such a crucial time in history where we have for the first time the choice to make
2: whether humanity will continue or not. I think that we are so disconnected from almost everything that sustains us that we don't know how to take care of those things that sustain us.
0: People have a hard time identifying with their role in nature.
1: Humans have brought the world to the brink of destruction. And it's really important for us to understand that we are a
2: part of that, each of us, every day. So of course, the environmental situation is dire. But also when I look around, it seems like most of our people and culture is really grieving and unhappy. And I believe that most of that is because of a sense of so much disconnection, so much lack of connection to our environment, to nature, to the things that sustain us, to the things that keep us alive and fed.
1: And it is crucial for us to make changes now that change
2: that narrative. If we don't make some more dramatic changes soon, none of us really know what will happen. But do we want things to stay the way that they are? Probably not. What we do know is that we don't have that even as an option. We don't have an option of things continuing to stay as they are.
1: The permaculture movement is one expression of people saying we've got to make changes.
2: solution is going to look like more people doing more for themselves. It's going to look like more people growing their own food, more people legally being able to build their own shelter.
1: Permaculture is a system that is based on ethics and principles that can be applied in any context around the globe. And it is a design methodology that walks you through the process of designing in harmonics with the natural landscape with the existing patterns of the community that you live in. The permaculture process has four basic steps to it, which is assessment, visioning, design and implementation. And that can be adopted at both a landscape level where you're building a garden or within a social context for a community. Quail Springs Permaculture is a community that is made up of teachers who are trying to demonstrate How regenerative living can happen in even the most degraded places. Finding ways, simple ways, to bring permaculture into your life can start with a compost pile, perhaps
0: chickens in the backyard, a worm bin, and then looking around, particularly in your pantry, at where food comes from.
2: We're taught to think in such a limited capacity of what our options even are. We're given one idea of what a house is, one idea of where to get our food and groceries. Part of my hope for this course is that you get a broader idea of what some of these possibilities and options even are.
1: This course and the permaculture ethics, principles, and methodologies are right at the core of tooling you up giving you the understandings how to design the next best steps for you to change that narrative. Permaculture for for everybody. It's for people who are wanting to garden on their balcony. It's for people wanting to put a garden in their backyard. It's for farmers who want to better their systems in a way that helps them to be more efficient and to be more in harmony with the landscape around them. Am I taking care of the earth? Am I taking care of people? Am I redistributing surplus?
2: If we can identify and look inside of ourselves and actually realize that we might not want to be continuing to live our lives in the ways that we are right now, that to me is the first step. From that place, we can then make choices different. It's
1: something that is both practical, but also it's something that speaks to, I know my heart, that we have a future for these children, and we no longer steal from their future, but we actually contribute to it. Legend as we could be legends, etched in the stone, forever on thrones, histories made in the moments, heroes collide, it's all
0: Thank you for listening to warren brush on the ancient roots of regenerative agriculture as warren makes clear we can heal our landscapes and communities and feed ourselves an abundance of nutritious food through good solid well-planned design whether you have a small apartment balcony or acres to farm our commune course principles of permaculture will empower you to live in closer relationship to that which sustains you. Learn how to observe the natural world in new and profound ways. Live regeneratively in your landscape and improve your personal food security. This is truly a course that offers meaningful and local solutions to massive global problems. I hope you'll check it out with a free 14-day commune membership trial. Just go to onecommune.com trial to sign up. And also, I hope you will subscribe to the podcast to receive more lessons like these. Subscribers are the first to receive new episodes and are the lifeblood of this show. So subscribe, and while you're at it, leave us a review. My mom reads everyone. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you.